excited to get into God's word with you as a church family. And so head to the book of Jonah with me. Uh, You can go to your Old Testament, keep flipping. It's a little bit later in your Old Testament. It's after Obadiah, which I'm sure helps all of you, right? Hey, you can go to the uh, table of contents if you need to, like no shame in this place. Uh, Go to the table of contents, find Jonah. Jonah chapter two is where we're gonna be. And as you get there, uh, here's what I need to frame up for you that I did last week, but some of you weren't here, is you need to know Jonah is a pretty familiar story. Like I imagine some of you don't know where the book of Jonah is, but you're familiar with the story of Jonah. And you know it has something to do with a fish or a well. And uh, the reality is sometimes familiarity can be good. Like it's good to know where books of the Bible are uh, in your Bible. It's good to know kind of stories, maybe children's stories that you grew up learning from veggie tales or flannel graphs or whatever the case may be, but I think for Jonah, it's a little unfortunate that it's so familiar because many of us, we, we see the book of Jonah and we're like, okay, fish, well, got it, children's story, boom. And the reality is it's about so much more than a fish. And we said it last week, it is about God revealing the condition of people and his own character through Jonah's life. And the reason Jonah is all about that is because the whole Bible is all about that. But, but as we do look at Jonah, we see that happens in a unique way. You see, Jonah is a prophet. We see that in the very beginning, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's typically how prophets rolled, that God would give his words through the words of a man or a messenger. And so you saw God's words through, through man's words, but Jonah is different than any other prophetic book in all of scripture. It's not God's words through man's words, it's God's words through man's story. See, if you read the book of Jonah, I encourage you to do so. It's four chapters. It'll take you 15 minutes. What you see is a story that's showing us the condition of people and showing us the character of God. And so as as we read Jonah, the way we're doing it is just reading chapter by chapter one, because it's a story. You want to grab the narrative and see what God's teaching us. But we also want to grab the narrative and see and pull out the condition of people and the character of God. It's about more than a big fish. Okay. So Jonah chapter two, we're going to read it together. And as we read it, you're going to say, well, Tim, it's not about a big fish, but Jonah's in the belly of a fish. (laughs) We're gonna address that just briefly after we read the the text, okay? So bear with me. Jonah chapter two, starting in verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the what? Fish. All right, you got it out of your system. Okay. (laughs) Saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have owed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." 
And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So the book of Jonah is not primarily about a fish, and yet we're in the passage that talks about the fish. So we need to talk about the fish. See, I think even if you've grown up in the church, maybe you're brand new to the church, maybe one of your biggest struggles with the Bible and Christianity is stories like this. Anybody? You're like, okay, Tim, so I'm supposed to believe this guy Jonah gets swallowed up in a fish three days and three nights, gets barfed out onto land. Like I'm supposed to just believe that, take it at face value. And so here's what I would say. We're not gonna address this the whole sermon, but here's what I would say. As you look at it, there's two predominant biblical views of the story of Jonah. There's parable and there's literal. Those are the biblical views of Jonah, right? And so as you look at the view that it's, it's parable, what you see is some scholars who believe the Bible, the full counsel of God's word, they'll say things like, hey, hey, Jonah was a real guy. Like history proves that. Second Kings 14 shows us that. Jonah's referenced as a prophet. Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 40, he talks about Jonah. So Jonah must be a real guy, but maybe this is a literary device of parable with this real guy to teach us a greater lesson, right? And maybe some of you come out today and that's what you believe. I would say you still can believe the Bible and we can be friends, okay? All right? But, but here's the other predominant biblical view is that it's not parable, it's, it's literal. And maybe this is primarily the most of us, if you grew up in church, that's what you believe in. And you need to know the biggest reason why scholars and theologians believe that is go back to Matthew 12, verse 40. Because Jesus specifically doesn't just mention Jonah, he says Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And so we tend to, in church, like the right answer is Jesus, right? And so Jesus said, or like, well, I agree with Jesus. And, and so here's what I wanna say is there's parable and there's literal. I believe both can be biblical. But here's just to put my cards on the table. I believe it's literal. And I'm gonna convince you of that in like 60 seconds. You ready? Okay. All right. Uh, I believe it's, it's, it's literal because Jesus did say it. All right. And, and, but beyond that, I believe it's, it's literal because these were real places, not, not in a land far, far away. These were, were real places. We showed you a map last week. We have it again this week. Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. He instead runs to Tarshish. Uh, Nineveh is modern day Iraq. Tarshish is the southern tip of Spain. These are, are real places that we are given. But they're not just real places, they're real places with real problems. Like historians will talk about Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian empire. And they'll talk about and affirm the evil things that scripture talks about that they did. Like skinny people alive, historians will talk about that. Like capturing kids as slaves, historians will will verify like there was an Assyrian empire. It was one of the most evil empires we have ever seen. There's real places, there's real problems. And then maybe I think the biggest reason I believe it's literal, is because they they have a real God in this story. You see, if you are a believer in Christ, you believe in some supernatural and miraculous things. All the way back in the beginning of your Bible, you believe this. In Genesis, how do we believe God creates the universe? He does it with his very words. He spoke and it happened. That is supernatural. That is a, a miracle from a real God. Right? When you see the stars at night and you see the sunrise and you see the sunset, we're all kind of in awe of this, this real supernatural God who does miraculous things. As you look at the life of Jesus specifically, let's say you're a New Testament Christian only, like I just believe in Jesus. That Old Testament's kind of crazy. 
If that's you, well, listen, what you believe about Jesus, if you read the scriptures, is that there was a girl, a teenage girl who had a baby named Jesus without having sex. It was a miraculous conception. You believe in Jesus? That's what you believe. Some of you are like, I don't know. I, maybe I don't. Like, I'm not here to question your faith. I'm just saying this is what you believe. Here's what the pinnacle of our faith is. Everything rides on this in our faith. The apostle Paul says, we're foolish if it didn't happen. You know what it is? The resurrection of a dead man named Jesus Christ, who was in a tomb for three days and three nights. And he came back to life and beat death, sin, Satan, and the grave. Do you believe that? Amen. You can't get more supernatural and miraculous than that. Friends, we serve a real God. If we can figure out how to put people in a submarine underwater and they can live for weeks, God can figure out how to put a dude in a fish. Okay? Now, did I convince you yet? Okay. You know what? I don't even care because it's not about a fish. Okay? All right. But I think we have to address it. You know, if you've been a part of Phoenix Bible Church, we don't skirt around issues. So, so hopefully that, that puts you on a journey to at least go back and read the book of Jonah. Read it chapters one through four. You read it. Uh, for yourself. But, but here's the point of Jonah. Remember what we said. It's not about a great fish. It is about the condition of people and the character of who? God. That's what it's about. So what do we learn about the character of God? Well, we learn he's a God of grace, uh, immeasurable grace, scandalous even grace. Here's what we learn about that grace. Here's our first point if you take notes. This scandalous grace can be uncomfortable. This scandalous grace can be uncomfortable. Where do I get that? I get that from Jonah being in fish intestines, right? I think it's pretty safe to say this was not a night at the Hilton, amen? Right, this is not not comfortable. And Jonah gives us a vivid description of this uncomfortableness. Look at verse five. He says, the waters are closing in over me to take my life. The deep is surrounding me. Uh, Weeds are wrapped around my head. How many of you, you got seaweed stuck on your ankle at the beach and you freaked out, right? I mean, that's me every time I go in the ocean, I'm like, shark. It's like, no, it's it's seaweed, you know? Imagine having that wrapped around your head. That's what Jonah is describing here. Even verse 10, what could be this like glorious moment where Jonah is completely rescued, he's put on dry land. That's not a, like a comfortable moment, people. I mean, God didn't just take Jonah from indelicately, like I'm gonna, like a surgeon, like extract him from the belly of the fish and I'm gonna just prop him up on dry land. No, H- how did he get out? Verse 10, vomit. How many of you know vomit is not, un- is not comfortable, okay? This whole scene is uncomfortable physically. But it's also uncomfortable emotionally. But if you look at it with me, and I'd ask you to do that, verse two, listen to Jonah. He says, I called out of my distress. I cried out of Sheol. That's Hebrew for utter darkness. Later, he says he's in a pit. Verse four, he feels driven away from the very sight of God. Verse seven, his very life is fainting away. Here's what's happening. This is an emotional, uncomfortable, dark, dark place. He uses vivid imagery, Sheol, Hebrew language. You would have learned what that means. It's the depths, the very darkest place of our earth. That's where Jonah feels like he is. This is uncomfortable physically, but it's also uncomfortable emotionally. Really uncomfortable is not the right word. It's like unraveling. That's what's happening to Jonah's life. Now question, 
who is responsible for Jonah's uncomfortable situation? Yeah, maybe you would say Jonah, because what, what did he do? What has he done so far? Ran, right? 2,500 miles the opposite direction, right? He disobeyed in style, right? Jonah's in this uncomfortable position because he ran, he, he sinned. You could also say, read chapter one, who threw Jonah overboard into the water? The sailors. Maybe they're responsible. Let's read our Bible and let's see who's responsible. All right, verse three, look at the verse. Jonah says this, for you, who's he talking about? God, right answer. For you, God cast me into the deep. Wait a second. I thought the sailors cast him into the deep. Jonah says, for you, God did that. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Chapter one, verse 17 says this, the Lord appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. Who's responsible for Jonah's uncomfortable position? God put him there, right? Now, Now, second question. So is this God's grace or is this God's judgment on Jonah? See, here's the reality. It's a little bit of both. What do we know from scripture? God is a father. We we know that God disciplines, because he's a father, he disciplines the ones he loves. You need to know this morning, if you're running from God, that is sin. And God, if you're a Christian, he's your heavenly father. And he loves you so much that he will get your attention, sometimes in uncomfortable ways, sometimes through discipline. It's like me as a father. I'll tell my kids, hey, I love you too much to let you disobey. That's free tip. Parents, take that one home, okay? Why? Because I'm a, I'm a father. Well, God's a perfect father. Do you think he loves his kids enough to come after them when they sin? Yes, way better than I do. And so it's a little bit of of discipline, of judgment, but it's also a lot of grace. You see, it's this moment that turns Jonah's life around, not just physically, but spiritually, right? Chapter three, we'll read it next week. He goes on to actually obey God. This flips the script of Noah's life. How? Fish intestines. Right, he's crying out. This isn't one of his best moments. He's crying out in shale. His life, scripture says, is fainting away. And yet it's God's grace to Jonah, who's running from God, not just to Tarshish, but to pain, to death, because that's what sin leads to. And so it's God's grace that he's in a fish. It's God's grace that he's having this even moment where he can't cry out to God and plead with God. It's God's grace that he vomits him on the shore. It's God's grace, amen? And yet it's uncomfortable. See, here's the reality before us today in 2022. We typically don't put uncomfortable and grace together. We split those apart. I'll I'll tell you it this way. When my kids bring home hard homework, you, you know what they say? Why does the teacher hate me? <laughs> but not just kids. Like we can't just throw it on the kids. It's, it's us. Like when we go to Starbucks and the internet doesn't work, we're like, not today, Satan. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like pray now? Like I want to work and distract myself with social media. God, why? We, we experience uncomfortableness. We think, well, that must not be God. 
We invite you to go to a community group and you're like, well, that's, I don't really know them. And we're gonna talk about scripture. I'm gonna talk about my life. And like, I'm supposed to repent to them and like talk about my weaknesses. Like that sounds uncomfortable. It doesn't sound like grace, amazing grace. Does it to you? But yet, that is God's grace. Some of you, it's God's grace to throw you in the belly of a fish in the midst of your sin. You see, you know what scares me the most as a pastor? It's not people who are uncomfortable in their sin. It's people that are comfortable in their sin. It's not the people who are uncomfortable as I see them running from God. That doesn't scare me. What scares me is the people who appear to be comfortable in their running and in their sinning. Who, who say, Tim, actually, and maybe this is you today, like, man, I'm, I'm doing great. <laughs> I mean, the job is going great. The family's doing great. School's off to a good start. I'm back for another semester. I'm meeting my, my friends. I mean, my, like, the porn addiction, like, nobody even knows about that. Or, I mean, this financial scandal. I mean, I, Tim, I mean, I know you said, like, it's uncomfortable, but, like, I feel fine. I, my bank account keeps increasing. Like, I just got the corner office. My net worth is doing awesome. Or maybe it's more subtle than that. Maybe it's not the financial or the sexual sin. Maybe it's the respectable sin. Like, you know, you're just like, man, I'm an extroverted person. And I just like, I share like, instead of like praying for that person myself about their issue, I I ask other people, 10 other people to to pray about their issue. And um, you spiritualize it because that's what we do in church, you know. But that's gossip. And you're like, but it feels great. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is for you, but, but what scares me the most as a pastor is when I see people who are comfortable as they run from God and their sin or their self-righteousness. And they show up to church every Sunday and go through the routine. I, I pray God makes you uncomfortable if that's you. Because what that is, is the judgment of God. He is letting you get what you want, which is sin and death. Man, it's God's grace to yank you out of that place. Amen? To come out, to stir that up in your community, to stir that up in your life, to, to make you uncomfortable because he's a good father who loves you and doesn't want you to run out in that street and get hit by that car. He wants to pull you back. And you may think, ow, but that hurts. Ow, I skinned my knee. Listen, death hurts way more, amen? God wants to end grace, make you uncomfortable. And some of you today, that moment, that uncomfortable moment is right now. Is is he gonna keep listing every sin? (laughs) And you're so uncomfortable right now. That's God's grace to you. That's God's grace to you. Because it's waking you up to your running, to your sinning, to your your self-righteousness. And it's causing you to realize, oh, I need grace too, right? It's uncomfortable but it's God's gift of grace. Do you see it that way? Here's the second and the last thing we see. Scandalous grace is always undeserving. It can be uncomfortable. It's always undeserving. Uh, Here's the deal. Uh, If you literally just walked into this room, I can summarize Jonah for you right now. Like if you just walked in the room, here's what Jonah is about. You ready to take notes? It's God calls, Jonah runs. Profound, isn't it? God calls and Jonah runs. I I could throw in some extra details like Jonah falls asleep. (laughs) Jonah asked the sailors to throw him overboard. 
That's literally, to this point in the story, that's what Jonah has contributed to this situation. Running and sleeping. And yet, God rescues Jonah. He could have drowned, he could have died, but God rescues him. Verse two, it's not just that God rescues him, he's with him. It says, God answers Jonah. God hears his voice. You see, as you read scripture, you need to know sequence is significant. Where does that happen? Where does God hear the voice of Jonah? Where does God answer Jonah? Where does God rescue Jonah? It's in chapter two, verse one and verse two. Where does Jonah give his eloquent poem? It's in all the verses that continue. Sequence is significant. Jonah didn't deserve God's grace. He brought literally nothing to the table. And yet God pursues him. Here, church, here's the bad news. Your running is sinning. You can't skirt around that. Your running is sinning. That's the bad news. The good news is God loves runners. Not because you're running fast or slow and kind of with a delicate, cautious balance around your sin. God loves runners because he is love. We love God, why? He first, he went first, he loved us. God loves you not because you're lovable. God loves you because he is love. That's Jonah's story. It's incredibly, entirely undeserving. And so you need to know, as much as I just talked about your sin and your running, and maybe you're feeling like maybe you're too far gone. Maybe, maybe when I listed some of the sins by name, you're like, that one's too close to home because that one's mine. And maybe it was just self-righteousness for you. Maybe it was a financial sin. Maybe it was greed. Maybe it was gossip. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it was lust. I don't know what it is for you. But you need to know, as you run, God still loves you and comes after you by no merit of your own. Not because you cleaned yourself up, today at church, not because you're stacking your good deeds up and they're a little bit higher than your bad deeds, not because you go serve at Bethany Bible Church with us tomorrow night. Like some of you are thinking already, you're like, man, I don't know if I wanna go do that. Like I'd rather watch Netflix or I'd rather just like do my thing. Like I just, I don't really wanna be around people. I'm introverted. And, but you're like, but I'm gonna go because that will make up for the thing I did because that pastor made me feel really guilty when he listed out my sin. It won't make up for it. See, the beauty of Christianity, the story of Scripture is that we are dead. Ephesians 2 says this. We are dead. Could have picked other imagery. Picks dead, lifeless, and cold. And we are raised to life in Christ by his grace so that no one could boast. There's nothing you can do. And when you realize there's nothing you can do, that's when God's grace impacts you the most, amen? That's how it worked for Jonah. I mean, what, what flips the script for Jonah? What, what makes him like, okay, I'm gonna go back to Ninevites. I mean, the people who skinned my people alive and captured our kids as slaves. What makes him do that? In chapter three, chapter two, he, he's a prophet someone speaking on behalf of God, and yet he fully doesn't embrace the grace of God till this moment. He starts crying out. He starts realizing, I have, that's what this idols comment is about. Did you see that? 
He starts talking about the vein uh, of idols. And you're like, what was that about? And it's forsaken the love of God. Then he starts to realize, man, my idol was autonomy. My idol was my prejudice against these Ninevites. My idol was myself. And I wanted to run away from God, not run to him. And an idol is putting something above and beyond God. Jonah did that with himself, with his prejudice, with his bias. Right? Uh, Augustine, uh, St. Augustine called it disordered loves. That's idolatry, is loving anything over and above God. Right? And, and he's realizing, hey, I've loved myself, my prejudice over and above God, and yet I forsook his love in the process. And he says, how could I do that? I'm willing to repay what I owe and make these sacrifices now. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Not to me. That's the moment that, that Jonah, this prophet, been in church since he was a baby, was dedicated as a child with a beautiful gift. But here, he embraces the grace of God, and that propels him to extend the grace of God to others because that's how it works. Uh, listen, we have an example uh, of that from our church. Uh, a lady named Pam is going to share some of her story with you. Would you turn your attention to the screen? In February of 2000, a fierce storm began in my life. My husband was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, also known as ALS. ALS is an irreversible, untreatable terminal illness. I knew the journey to come would be way beyond my ability. In fact, one day I threw up my arms to God, kind of frustrated and said, if I have to walk this journey through with my husband to his death and with my children, you're gonna have to do it. And he did. I can completely honestly say for the next 20 months before my husband passed away, God carried us, he provided for us. He was amazing, just like he says in Psalms 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. So I don't have anything to fear. And I didn't really. I also experienced what the Bible talks about as being a peace that passes all understanding. So God would walk through with us to my husband's death. You know, friends, sometimes it's easy to trust God in the storm. But what happens in the calm? In the storm, we know we're unable to carry the weight of it or to survive it. But what happens in the calm? I would apply the salve my desires craved and the world offered, so long as it made me feel better, and it did, but only for a short time. That temporary feel good would always eventually blow up, and I would come running back to the arms of my Savior, broken, crushed, and needing repair. By His grace, He was always there welcoming me back. We would walk together, I would lean into Him, and I would promise not to walk away again. But I would. The next time a guy came around and showed me attention and applied salve to my wound, I would run off trying to fulfill my longings and what my heart desired. The consequences were always the same. The feel good was always temporary. The roller coaster was exhausting, heartbreaking, and on a few occasions threatened my life. 
The Bible says that God leaves the 99 to run after the one sheep that has gone astray. And honestly, I can say that he did that. He never left me. I would leave him, but always come back to welcoming arms. I never experienced condemnation from him. His arms were always wide open waiting for me. This is the grace of God, that while we are yet sinners, he died to pay the penalty for our sins. He loves us extravagantly and desires to have an intimate relationship with us. I don't speak lightly of sin or of God's love and grace. Maybe the first time we can kid ourselves and think that we deserve it. But the truth is we don't, not even once, not even with one sin. It is only by his goodness, his goodness and his character that we are afforded it. There are consequences to sin. I do and will have those for my wanderings, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament. But by the grace of God, I know I am forgiven because I have confessed my sins and he is faithful and he is just. Only through the love of God have my wanderings ceased and path become level. I am so humbled by his goodness and grace. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. Amen. Can we thank Pam for sharing her story? Uh, what I've loved about these last couple of weeks talking with Pam is uh, she thanked me for the opportunity to share that story probably like five times. And every time she thanked me, I said, no, Pam, thank you. I mean, thank you for sharing this story of grace with us. This is a blessing to us, and I know it's going to be a blessing to our, our church. But, but what she's highlighting is what we see in the book of Jonah. See, in verse 9, uh, Jonah talks about a voice of thanksgiving. What we just read, this prayer, is really a poem of praise, that he's thankful, that he's received the grace of God, and now he's ready to extend the grace of God. But, but here's how it works. It's really crazy, is when you truly embrace the grace of God, you start to extend it to others, right? When you really, not, I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about doing a list of uh, religious rituals, but when you truly understand that without Christ, you're dead and then with Christ, you're alive, something changes in your life where you wanna share that with other people. When you understand, like scripture's really good about this. When you understand that you were ashes, but now you're, you're beauty, and you want to share that with other people. When you understand that you were destined to hell, but now you have a seat in heaven, you went from death to life. When you, when you embrace the grace of God, you can't help but extend it to other people. That's what this bookmark is about. Hopefully you got one last week. If you didn't get one this week, that's when we told you to write your name down first. First, embrace the grace of God. This isn't just like, well, it's the fall is coming and now it's time for evangelism. And I'm gonna gold stars for everybody who shares Christ five times. Like, what? That's not what we're doing. We're like overwhelmed with the grace of God that took us from death to life that we can't help but pray for other people to experience that also. That's what this is about. But, but here's how good God is and here's how gracious he is, is that when you extend the grace of God, you embrace it all over again. That's why Pam was thanking me, right? Why is she thanking me? I'm a recipient of the grace right now. But no, she is as she extends it. It's like a grace party, like Oprah. 
Like, you get some grace. You get some grace. I mean, she's just dealing it out. Everybody's getting grace. You know why? Because that's what grace is like. Ephesians chapter one, I love it. It talks about God's grace has been lavished upon us. It's the immeasurable riches of God's grace. It's the idea that it's overflowing. You embrace it, you extend it, you embrace it once again. It's overflowing, it's saturating everything about your life. That's God's amazing grace. So have you embraced that grace? Are you extending that grace? It's one and the same, right? See, we're gonna end our time taking communion. And it's a perfect time to take communion because communion reminds us of the contrast made possible by the grace of God. See, as we take communion, we remember that nothing that we could have done saves us. That in fact, that's why Jesus, did you know he died a gruesome death? He didn't die that death because you could figure it out on your own with some church attendance and some Bible reading. The reason Jesus died that death, because it was a death you could not die. It wouldn't suffice. Your your righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. So the son of God, who is perfect without sin, took your sin upon himself and he died for it on a bloody cross. But then three days later, he rose again and defeated your sin and Satan and the grave. Amen? That's amazing grace. And now you don't have to experience death for eternity, but you can experience life for eternity. You don't have to be stuck in the ashes. You can experience beautiful things because of his amazing grace. So we're gonna take communion in a moment. We're gonna remind ourselves of that truth. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. God, I pray for Phoenix Bible Church that we would be a people, if anything, that were marked by grace. That people in the community, in the city, would know that we have embraced the scandalous, amazing grace of God. And we don't have it all together. We don't have it all together. Uh, But we have your grace. And that's enough. And some other people in this city, the fifth largest city in the, in the country need to know that. And so God, I pray that that would mark us and that would mark our city. And God, I pray for the people in this room right now, maybe some of them who are comfortable. God, I pray that you would make them uncomfortable by your grace. God, I pray that you would stir those sins up, that you would, that's your grace to save them from the pain and the death that those sins will lead to. That's your grace. I pray that they would listen. God, I pray that they would stop listening to me in this moment. They would start talking to you and confess those sins before you. And God, I pray that all of us, as we take the bread and we dip it in the juice or the wine, we would know that your grace is completely undeserving. The blood and the body of Christ, that's it. That's why we can know you, sing to you, serve you, know one another, experience eternity with you. It's your blood and your body. And as we take the bread and dip it in the juice of the wine, may that hit us anew and afresh. And may we be in awe of your grace. So much so that we would sing about it and share about it with everyone we know because they need your grace too. God, that's our prayer. We pray that in the name of Jesus and everybody said, amen.